You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, As you heard that passage read, this discussion about who's the greatest, how appropriate is it that we come to this text on Super Bowl Sunday? Uh, Because when it comes to big moments in our culture, the Super Bowl is at the top. I mean, it's the top of the top. It's all about greatness. I don't know if you're following it, but on one team, we've got this young quarterback who is the future. I mean, he just signed a contract for $500 million. That's pretty great. On the other team, we have a quarterback who is playing in his 10th Super Bowl today. He's 43 years old. I'm 45, and I can't even imagine playing a game of flag football with the kids after church and not getting injured. I mean, he's called the GOAT. He's the greatest of all time. One of these teams in a few hours is going to win this game. And there is going to be fanfare for the winners. There's going to be trophies and rings for the winners. There's going to be financial reward for the winners. There's going to be bragging rights. And I can't think of a a more perfect picture of the way our culture thinks about greatness. Talent, hard work, and winning. That's what we think is great. And that cultural current, I'm telling you, is running through all of us. A few weeks ago, during the confession time, you know that time where we say, why don't you take a minute silently to confess? I had plenty of things that I could have talked about with God that day, but instead I just said, hey, Lord, would you maybe show me something I'm not thinking about? And immediately, just as clear as day, I heard the Lord say, you're still really competitive. Which kind of surprised me. I mean, I was very competitive when I was younger, mostly around sports, but of course it kind of bled into other areas of my life, and it's just, I haven't recently thought of myself as being competitive. Of course, apparently God sees it differently than that. And as I sat there, the Lord just began to show me new ways that my competitive nature was playing out in my life. Um, Little things, little wins that honestly are pretty meaningless, but for some reason I still find some kind of righteousness or peace in winning them. And so I had to confess my desire to win, to be first, to be on top, to be right. John Hanna, one of uh, our favorite seminary professors said, everyone in this world is trying to be so important that we will all die in insignificance. And that's what this passage is about. Trading importance for real significance, forsaking what the world says is great so that we might discover what God says is great, what is truly great. And Jesus frames the conversation in very stark terms. He says, if you wanna be first, then you gotta be last. All right, what does that mean? That's what we wanna unpack today. Uh, This passage has three very simple sections. First, Jesus teaches about his mission, and this gives us a picture of true greatness. And then the disciples don't get it, which we've seen in every passage we've been looking at in this series. 
And then Jesus, as he does in other places, gives further teaching so that they could see him and so that we could see him more clearly. All right, so let's begin with the example of greatness that we see in Jesus. Mark 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. So this journey's about teaching. And he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Uh, I don't know why they were afraid. I, I think if you're just wrong so many times, it just gets embarrassing, and so you don't want to talk about it anymore. Or perhaps you kind of suspect what he means, and you don't really want to know more about that. One of those options. Uh, what's happening in the narrative is throughout this section in Mark, Jesus and the disciples are on the move. They're going from village to town to village, and all the way, Jesus is teaching them about where they're going and what's going to happen when they get there. And verse 31 tells us, when they get to Jerusalem, the Son of Man's going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they're going to kill him, and then after three days, he'll rise again. This is the thing that he wants them to see. He says it in chapter 8. He says it here again in chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, when they're on the road up to Jerusalem, he'll say it for a third time. This is the thing. See this. This is who I really am. Jesus was on a mission. Uh, But the disciples over and over struggled to understand the mission. Because it just wasn't what they expected. They expected, as we have said, a Messiah who would go to Jerusalem, but not to suffer and die. Rather, he would go there to defeat their enemies, to gather in the Jews who had been dispersed, to set up an earthly kingdom, to reign and rule in glory. That was their vision of greatness. But Jesus is charting a much different course. While the disciples are thinking about upward mobility, Jesus is going down to the low place of surrender and sacrifice and death. In our profession of faith, we looked at Philippians 2, and and what a beautiful summary of that road that Jesus is taking. Let me read it again. Philippians 2 says, though Jesus was in the form of God, so in other words, if anyone was ever on the top, if anyone was ever the goat, it was Jesus. He was with God, he was God, he was in the form of God, but he didn't consider it a thing to be grasped, to be held on to. Rather, he emptied himself. He came down. He went low by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In other words, he took on flesh. We flaunt whatever glory we have. This is the truly glorious one and he veils his glory in flesh. And when being found in human form, some people found him and worshiped, uh, but the important people of the day, when they found him, they despised and ridiculed him. And he didn't try to prove himself or justify himself to them. Rather, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the Father, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, why would Jesus take that path? 
First Timothy 1.15 sums it up quite nicely. Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the good news of the gospel. The eternal son of God, the glorious one, came down into the dirt, into the muck of sin where we are to save us, to pull us up, to restore us to the true greatness for which we were made. If you don't think you're in that low place where the sinners are, you won't find Jesus. Even if you're here sitting in church, you won't see him because that's where he is. But if you know that you're among the sinners he came to save, if you know that's you, then let this sink in. On this journey he's making to Jerusalem, as he's teaching the disciples and moving from town to town and setting his face toward the cross, do you know what he's thinking about? He's thinking about us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came here for us. He's thinking about us. He lived his life for us. He died for us. He was raised from the dead for us. Do you know what he's doing right now? He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God where he intercedes for us. And soon, he will come back for us and gather us up into his glory. Jesus is the ultimate example of true greatness. And here it is. It's losing your life for the sake of others. So that's what Jesus is thinking about on this little trip. What are the disciples thinking about and talking about on this journey? Look at verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, I love it when Jesus asks questions. I think he knows the answer, but it's his job to to mess with you. It's his job to get you, he just loves you way too much to not make you talk. You know, that's how it is with kids. I try to ask my kids questions, they're like one word answers. I'm like, hey, it would be easier, trust me, to stop this conversation, but I love you. And so like, I I have to keep being dad and do this, right? He has to keep being Jesus and asking them, what were you guys talking about on the way? And they kept silent, like my kids do. Because on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. It's, it's almost unbelievable that this is the conversation they're having in this moment. They are following Jesus on the way to his death, And as they trail behind, they're having a a discussion, an argument about who, who the most impressive one is among them. What is going through their heads? What is the cultural current running through them? Well, in their day, conversations about precedence and rank were common. And so this this conversation feels normal to them as normal as junior high boys trying to one-up each other. Further, remember, their expectation is that Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom, and so he's going to need like a cabinet, you know, a team 
And so the disciples are dreaming of positions of power and authority and influence. And so you can see how this conversation gets heated up pretty quick because they're basically all applying for the same job and the only competition they have is with each other. One commentator says, the disciples have imbibed the wine of rank, placement, and self-importance and imported it into their fellowship with Jesus. In other words, we take the values and the ladder climbing in our workplaces and in our friend circles and we bring it right in here to this room. The eternal son of God is demoting himself to the lowest place. And meanwhile, his disciples are dreaming of personal advancement. This is happening among the 12. And so I think we're supposed to give some thought about how this kind of thing might happen among us. The ways that we compete with one another and compare ourselves against one another. Listen, you can believe all the right things about Jesus and still be jockeying for position among his followers. Right? You don't have to change your beliefs to do that. In fact, you can use your beliefs and knowledge to do that. All of us have something. We all have some angle that we can work, don't we? Some strength, some gifting. It could be your knowledge, it could be your piety, it could be your service, it could be your generosity, it could just be your likability or humor. It could be any of those good things used to display your personal glory, to let people know where you stand in this room. And when that kind of thing, which we all do, goes unchecked, unconfessed, that is how we end up trying to be so important that we all just die in insignificance. When we talk about being a gospel-centered church, we mean that our identity, like individually and corporately, is centered on our union with Christ. The most important thing about us is that we are united with him. And so when we find ourselves pretending and performing to gain some ground in this community, we repent of that because we know, listen, we know that there's no greater, no more significant status than being in Christ. There's no more significant purpose than being sent out by Jesus into the world. That's the reality of the kingdom. And anytime we step outside of that reality, we open ourselves up to being carried away by the current of worldly greatness. Let me ask you a question. If your ambitions came true, what would your life look like? I'm talking about the stuff you daydream about. You know, like what kind of life would you build for yourself if you didn't have any limitations? What does that look like? Does it look more like the dreams of the disciples or does it look more like the mission of Jesus? Does it look more like humility and sacrifice or being impressive and increase? I don't ask the question to guilt you because I, like, we all have the same answers. 
I just ask it to show you how enmeshed we are in our world's definition and pursuit of greatness. And so how do we change course? How do we follow the example of Jesus and discover true greatness? Well, he tells us how, beginning in verse 35. He sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Notice, he doesn't correct their desire to be great. He corrects their definition of greatness. Our problem is not that we desire to be great. It's not that that desire is too strong. Honestly, it's too weak because we would settle for the applause of men when God himself is offering himself to us. And so he's not saying, hey, chill out with the ambition. He's saying, no, lift your ambition to something better, something higher. Jesus' definition is this. The way to be first or great in the kingdom is to be last in the world and servant of all. So think about a line of people like a super long line, waiting for food, uh, trying to get into a concert, if that ever happens again, just just a long line, and like I'm at the front. I got there early, it's my right to be there, I'm at the front, I'm gonna get the best seat. Now, what if I just decide to quietly make my way just to the back of the line? If I do that, don't I become a servant of everyone in the line? Aren't I putting their interests above my own in that moment? That's what he's saying is true greatness. John Piper puts it this way. True greatness is not wanting to be first while others are second and third and fourth, but true greatness is the willingness to be last. True greatness is not positioning yourself so that others praise you, but true greatness is putting yourself in a position to serve everyone, to be a blessing to as many people as possible. See, the irony of a conversation about who's the greatest is that to win that argument, you have to put yourself above all the others. And by Jesus' definition, that automatically disqualifies you. It's just literally an argument you cannot win. Because the person who's actually greatest is never gonna make that case for themselves. They're gonna always put the others in front of them. Yeah, you know what, it's probably you. I don't know if you know who Edith, Edith Schaefer is. Francis Schaefer, her husband was a famous missionary apologist. They started Labrie, if you've ever heard of that. Uh, one time an interviewer asked Edith Schaefer this question. She said, who do you think the most important Christian woman alive today is? And Edith said, we don't know her name. She's dying of cancer in a hospital in India or somewhere. See, that's right. We'll never know who the greatest among us is because that person is just doing it in secret. They're not pushing themselves to the front of the line. True greatness is not often recognized or rewarded in this world. That's why it just takes a measure of faith, a measure of living unto God and not unto man. The disciples want to, find, want to define greatness in terms of position and power, but Jesus is defining it in terms of humility and service. You know what that means for a church? 
It means to make a difference here. I mean, to be great here, to be great in the kingdom of God doesn't mean you have to climb the organizational structure of the church. In fact, if you do that, you might ruin your chances. What it means is to be last and servant of all. It means to take initiative in places where you can serve. It means to use your God-given gifts in service to others. And anybody can do it. It's so accessible. You can do it. You can start today. You can help tear down. This, uh, maybe not. Don't touch this stuff. I think it costs a lot. Get some training for that. But you can serve in kids. You can listen to someone and not turn the conversation to your experiences. You can ask a child after church to tell you about their favorite thing. You can go home and serve your roommates or your spouse. There's just so many ways. It's so accessible. In that regard, it's really so easy to be great, isn't it? Verse 36 gives us an illustration of what this greatness looks like. And Jesus took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So to understand the illustration, uh, you have to remember how children were viewed in this culture. And it's not like our culture. We're kind of a child-centered culture. Children have a lot of power. And just look at any family schedule and it'll tell you who the thing revolves around. All right? That wasn't the case for them. Children were like low on the social scale. They were to be quiet and obedient. And some of the parents were like, I want, that's a good day. I want to go back to those days. Uh, but they didn't have anything to offer. So for those of us trying to move up in the world, Mark writes this in such a way to turn our attention downward to this child, the least and the last. Now, in Matthew, in a very similar scene, the point is that we should be like the child. Uh, here in Mark, the point is different. Here, the point is, is that we should be like Jesus in the way that he receives this child and, and all of the least and last that the child represents. And so to receive is just a term of hospitality. It means to welcome, to take in, to serve. And so look how Jesus receives this child. Look at every phrase. He took a child. Okay, so when Jesus wants to talk about with the disciples, when he wants to help them understand true greatness, he looks around and he finds the most socially disadvantageous relationship he can find, a, a little child, and he takes him. The child brings nothing to the table. His value is that he was sought out and taken in by Jesus. And then, look, he put him in the midst of them, in the middle of the disciples. So he takes this child who they had not seen and don't care about and put, them, put him in the middle, as if to say, hey, in this discussion of who's the greatest, where does, where does he rank on the scale? How great do you think this guy is? And taking him in his arms, the verb means to embrace it's, it's the word that's used for like how you would take a child into the fold of your arm and just in adore. The greatness of Jesus is that he notices us and takes hold of us and places us in his body to be a vital member 
of his people and takes us up in his arms so that we might rest in his love. That is his glory and delight. And now he invites them and us to receive others in the same way. I take that to mean at least two things. First, we receive all of God's people as we do children, which is to say, without thought of their accomplishments or importance or what they might offer us. That's how you, I mean, if you see a kid out there and he wants to come give you a hug, you're not gonna be like, well, you're not gonna be like thinking about, now, what has this kid done? You know, what's he accomplished? You don't do, you just grab the kid. And that's how to receive one another without thought of accomplishment and importance. In other words, we don't show preference for people who have something to offer us. The other thing I think it means is that we intentionally turn our attention to the least and the last, to the overlooked and lonely and powerless. We're to go seek them out, to bring them into our circles, to honor them and care for them. And some of you, all of us, in our gut, we're kind of like, wait, okay, but what do I get out of that? And Jesus says, you get me. You get me. When we go low to serve someone in the name of Jesus, it is in that place where the very presence and power of God enters into our life. And what could be greater than that? I've heard a number of people mention to me recently how they miss, listen, true story, they miss serving in Providence Kids. You know, when they signed up, they're like, okay, if I gotta do it, I gotta do it, and now they miss it. You know why? Because they discovered that in serving those children, they brought more of God into their life. It's not just good for the kids, it's good for us. If you want to be great, this is how you do it. Get in there with the blueberries and the apricots and serve them. And you'll find God there. Whether it's serving in PK or making meals for the homeless or listening to your neighbors this week, it could just be any number of little things. But what Jesus is saying is that in all of these little things, wherever you go low, wherever you go to the back of the line, that's where you'll find me. Whenever you give yourself for the sake of others, I give myself to you. True greatness is not what the world says it is. It's not conquering and winning. It's dying and losing. This morning I was, uh, well, I'll finish with this. I was reading 2 Chronicles 13, pretty great battle scene with King Jeroboam, who's the king of the northern kingdom Israel, and King um, Abijah, Abijah, I think is how you pronounce it, in the southern kingdom in Judah. And they're facing off in battle. And King Jeroboam's army is far greater, like 8,000 soldiers, and King Abijah's army is 4,000 soldiers. So, I mean, he's just outmatched, outnumbered, totally. But King Jeroboam has forsaken the Lord and worshiped other gods. And King Abijah and his people have not done that. And so 
King Abijah comes to this battle confident and he says, listen, do you think that now you're going to withstand the kingdom of God because you have a multitude of soldiers? Because you're great in some way? And then he pleads with them, don't do this. Don't fight against the Lord because you will not succeed. And King Jeroboam in his own wisdom and strength sends part of his army around to the back of King Judah to ambush them from behind. And when Judah's army sees that they are surrounded in front and behind from the enemy, they cry to the Lord and the soldiers raise their battle shout. And the next sentence is, and the Lord defeated their enemies. I don't even know if they fought. I don't know what happened, but they they were defeated. And it just made me think, just let me stretch this a little bit, okay? It just made me think about how we, the church, are surrounded by a world that is absolutely opposed to God. A world that flexes its might. A world that boasts its greatness. You know what my neighbors say when I tell them I'm a pastor? Oh, good for you. That's what they say. You know what that means? It means you're a loser. You know, people say the church, that's for weak people. I'm glad it's there for them. Or they say the church is irrelevant. God is dead. Listen, they're right about one thing. We're weak people. But God is not dead. He is raised from the dead. Alive right now. Living in and through his people. And so when we see the world around us, in front and behind, we cry to the Lord and we raise our battle shout. And you know what our great strategic military move is? You know the thing that we set out to do is to be last and servant of all. Because when we do that, God meets us there and defeats our enemies and pushes back the darkness. The disciples eventually learned this. Like after the resurrection, they figured out what true greatness was. They followed the example of Jesus. They welcomed the least and the last in his name. And as they did, the world said, you're losers, but they turned the world upside down. And here we are, two centuries later, and the cause of Christ is still turning the world upside down. T.J. Tim says the church is winning every day because Jesus' disciples go on losing every day. What a great message. Get out there and lose. You'll find Jesus there. The communion table is such a wonderful picture of all that we've been talking about. Um, Soon after this, Jesus took his disciples into an upper room and John tells us that on the way to the upper room, they were arguing again about which of them was the greatest. And Jesus takes these ambition-hungry people in and he says, listen, here's, let me tell you something. (laughs) This is my body broken for you. When you eat of this, remember me. He took a cup of wine. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink of this cup, remember what my greatness is all about. And now today, he invites all who believe in him to come to his table. He receives you here. And this is a table where we give no consideration to rank or status or achievement or resume or anything else. All of us bring nothing 
but our need for Jesus. Let's give thanks for this meal. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.